1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Timothy.
2: So, the law was put in effect to lead us to Christ. It isn't that the righteous are so good to go that they don't need the law he's just simply saying that if if you are not a lawbreaker, then the law itself is not going to help you know expose anything more because you already are aware of it but for the law breaker for the ungodly for the rebels for the unholy and irreligious there's good reason for the commandments of god The law
1: of God shows us what it means to live right. It reveals to us where we fall short and where we need to grow. Today, Pastor Gary is going to talk about the purpose of the law, especially in the life of an unbeliever. We might think that the law has no more relevance since the death of Christ, but even Jesus said He didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. The law has a significant place in our lives when it comes to showing us our need for a Savior. How great is our God that He gave us Jesus too. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, so if you'll take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we left off right around verse uh, 7 and 8. A little background again, last week was an introduction to the book of 1 Timothy, and we only got through the first seven verses. But again, this is a book written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to Timothy. The year is roughly AD 62-63. Paul is writing this letter from Macedonia, which is Greece. He's writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The Bible tells us that Paul led Timothy to Christ as a young man, probably around the age of 15, Timothy was. This letter comes to Timothy from Paul about 15 years after that. So Timothy now, relatively speaking, a young pastor, he's about 30 years of age, pastoring this church here in Ephesus in modern Turkey, and Paul is giving instruction to him as what Paul refers to as my son in the faith. Timothy is not his biological son, but Timothy is his spiritual son. Paul has been a spiritual mentor, uh, an influence in Timothy's life, leading him to Christ, mentoring him now, raising him up in the ministry. And so uh, Timothy is being encouraged and challenged by Paul and exhorted not just for himself, but for the church that he pastors. mentioned last week that 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are three letters by Paul called the pastoral epistles because those are letters that Paul wrote to encourage pastors and to help them understand how the church should function and what the church should look like. Even though in our Bibles it's written as 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, the order that Paul wrote the letters was 1st Timothy, Titus, and 2nd Timothy. That doesn't change anything about the content but just in terms of history. So here's this first letter that he writes here to young Timothy, and we mentioned last week, and I'll just put it up again on the screen, that the key verse, the main point of this letter is found in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, although I hope to come to you soon, Paul writes... I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So that's the key verse that gives the explanation as to why he's writing, and therefore this applies not only to the church in Ephesus, but also to us, because we still make up the church of Jesus Christ. We're one tiny part of it in the overall church, capital C, but nevertheless, being a part of God's household, part of God's family, these are instructions still relevant for us today. How many of you understand that God's truth is timeless truth, and that it doesn't change? you know styles change approaches change maybe to how we present the gospel to you know keep it relevant or current with the culture but we don't water down the gospel we don't change scripture we don't twist truth to make it more convenient to our lifestyles. God's truth is timeless in that sense. So though there might be different methods of how we communicate the gospel, different ways that we get the gospel across, we don't change the meaning, intent, and, and the language of the text. We preserve the text in its context, and we let the Word of God speak for itself and speak to our hearts and challenge us and change us. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it it helps us in our faith. Uh, Jesus talks about if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So it's liberating. But if we in any way alter scripture or do a disservice to the text, uh, then we we rob ourselves of the liberating truth of scripture and of the faith building aspect that happens when we hear scripture and do what it says. There's a blessing to it. James tells us do not merely listen to the word. He says, but do what it says. So uh, I'm thankful for you because I know that you have a heart's desire, even though at times, you know, at times the word of God is like ice cream. It goes down sweet and smooth. And other times it's like Brussels sprouts. It's a little bit on the bitter side, as much butter and salt as you put on those puppies. They still are hard to swallow. And that's the way scripture is. Sometimes it's like ice cream, sometimes like Brussels sprouts, but it's all good. And it's, and it's all from God. And so it should be received that way. Now, as part of the things that should define the church, Paul's going to start through these six chapters here to make a list for us. I actually came up with seven. We're going to be looking at not all tonight, but in the course of our study through these chapters, we're going to be seeing seven particular things that should define the church. And one of the things we mentioned last week was is sound doctrine. And we talked last week about how false doctrine comes from adding to God's word, subtracting from God's word, and omitting God's word. When you add to God's word, that's legalism, because adding to God's word means that you are... You are expounding on the, the statutes and commands and ordinances of God as if, as if any of us should do that. But that was what was the Pharisees were guilty of, and that's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 rebuked the religious leaders of, of his day because he said, you tie heavy loads upon men's shoulders, meaning you've made the word of God, you've made the law of God burdensome to people because they actually added to the law and they parsed out the commandments such That it became even more burdensome, and thus it leads to legalism. But you can also be guilty of liberalism, which is subtracting from God's Word, conveniently removing things that are there because it better suits your lifestyle if those things weren't there. So subtracting some things from Scripture is a liberal approach to God's Word. And unfortunately today, there are many churches that are moving towards a more liberal view of Scripture. Very few seminaries today actually have in their statement of faith that they believe in the inerrant, infallible Word of God, that many seminaries today have moved towards a liberal view of Scripture and don't have the same High regard as most seminaries once did, and our culture is trending that way. It's kind of this more progressive, kind of hip way we're going to look at scriptures. We're going to we're going to put some of the things on the shelf that we think are antiquated, don't apply to us anymore, and we're only going to parse out those parts that we like. It's very dangerous. That's liberalism. And then the third thing is omitting God's word. Now. I think last week, if you took notes, I said denying God's word, and I got to thinking about the word, and I thought, you know, the word omit is better than denying. So if you took notes last week, change it to omit. And here's the reason. If I were to say to you, God is love, and he wants none to perish, is that a true statement, yes or no? Yes, that's a true statement. God is love, and he wants none to perish. But if that's all I said to you, without giving you the whole counsel of God's word, omitting God's Word is heretical. In other words, if I were to say to you, God is love, He wants none to perish... And then that's all you ever heard, and I never added the other part, but God is also just and sin must be punished, but thankfully he made a way for us through his son Christ who died on a cross to take the punishment for us, that if we believe in Christ, we can have forgiveness of sins and and go to heaven and therefore won't perish. Okay, If I left that part out and all you heard was God is love and he wants none to perish, you'd only be getting half of the story, and how many of you understand that a half truth is a whole lie so you can actually have heresy not just in what you say that might be incorrect you can have heresy in what you omit because you refuse to give the rest of the story so it has to be the whole counsel of god's word and so one of the things that paul is saying to young timothy here is as he's pastoring this church is you have to be about sound doctrine and what he's going to say in the section we're now going to move into starting in verse 8 is that there's this inextricable connection between sound doctrine and right conduct in a Christian's life. He's going he's to say to us, starting in verse 8, that if you don't have sound doctrine, which is a, a firm set of beliefs based on Scripture, then you won't know right conduct as, as a Christian, you won't, you won't really know what God's standard is for right and wrong. So you must have sound doctrine in order to have right conduct. And so this is where we're going, starting in verse 8. He says this We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. And then there's a semicolon there, so let me just pause here. What does he mean by talking about this statement that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels? Well, here's the deal. Technically speaking, the law was given to define right and wrong. If you happen to do what is right well, then you don't really need the law That is breathing down your neck. In other words, let's say, for example, that you, you really don't have a problem with stealing. Maybe, maybe you got some other issues, but stealing's not one of them, right? We all have some kind of issue. But let's just say for the moment that stealing is just not one of them. You, you just, you, you have never stolen. You don't have an interest in stealing. You don't want to steal. It's just something that you, you know, you just don't do. So, do you really need to know the penal code, the criminal penal code for stealing, if in fact you just don't steal? No, the penal code is given for people who are thieves. So that they know this is wrong, you got to stop doing it, and there's consequences. So in other words, what he's saying is that for the righteous, for people who obey God, you don't really need the law, it's for the unrighteous. And Galatians 3.24 says that the intent of the law was put in charge, Paul writes in Galatians 3, to lead us to Christ, to bring us to Christ, so that by faith we might be justified. Do you know what happened in Jesus' day? was that the religious leaders were using the law as a means to get to God instead of realizing that the law was a mirror that exposed their sinful condition. So the Pharisees, instead of looking at the law like a mirror that kind of reflected their sinful condition that then hopefully would make them cry out for a Savior... Instead they looked at their sinful condition and they saw the law and they thought well I just got to make myself better and improve on this so that I can get closer to God They missed the whole intent of the law. The law was not a cure The law was just a mirror or another way of of saying it is that the law is like a thermometer It doesn't cure you. It just shows you that you're sick You take your temperature, you know when you're sick you take your temperature with a thermometer you know, n- nowadays, they, they have the, the whole thing that you just kind of whisk it across a child's forehead, and now that, th- But back in my day, it was the mercury thermometer that your mom had to shake before before she's... Hopefully, your mouth. Uh, sometimes, you know, we've come a long way, baby. All right. It's your forehead. How dainty is that? But at one time, it was very invasive, like, you know, like, like a pat down at, at the airport or so, you know, I was... Um, but a temper you know, when you take your temperature with a thermometer, the thermometer has no ability to cure you. The thermometer just shows that you're sick. The law is in, in this is in the same way. It had no ability to cure a person. Well, if I just obey the law and keep all the commandments, then I'm good to go. No, 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 no. The law was to show you how sick you and I are, and then when it exposes our hearts, then it causes us supposed to, cause us to cry out to God, we need a Savior. Thus, Jesus enters the world, and he dies for our sins because we could never live up to the righteous standard of the law, try as hard as we might. And there are a lot of people today who still are trying to be really, 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 really good persons because they really want to be good people because they really want God to love them and just to like them. And the fact of the matter is God already loves you. God so loved the world in all of our sinfulness that He gave His Son Jesus to die on a cross. You, you can't by your good conduct improve on the love of God for you. Okay? But the problem is it's an exercise in futility. Because if you think that you can just be good enough, good enough, good enough, and then God, you can somehow get favor, none of us can be good enough. That's why we need a Savior. There's none righteous. None of us. No, not one. So God sends a Savior, Jesus because of his love for us to die for our sins so the law was put in effect to lead us to christ it isn't that the righteous are so good to go that they don't need the law he's just simply saying that if if you are not a law breaker then the law itself is not going to help you know expose anything more because you already are aware of it but for the law breaker for the ungodly, for the rebels, for the unholy and irreligious, there's good reason for the commandments of God. And then he goes on to make a list, the rest of verse 9, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and perverts. Now that word pervert in the ESV says men who practice homosexuality. Uh, The Greek word is uh, arsenokroites. Arsenokroites from two Greek words, aren, meaning male, and kroite, meaning to lie down. And so that's why the ESV translates it very literally, men who practice homosexuality. For slave traders, okay, God condemns slavery. I know that it was a popular thing in first century Roman Empire. And I know sometimes when you read your Bibles, it it doesn't seem like God takes a hard enough, strong enough stance against slavery, but he does. And they're listed here, slave traders, among those with adulterers and perverts and liars. And, you know, one of the great testimonies of a slave trader, former slave trader, of course, was, was John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, captain of a slave trading ship and and when he got saved and got convicted about what he was doing one of the uh, my most favorite quotes ever he spoke right before he died at the age of 84 and John Newton said my mind is nearly gone but two things i can remember that i am a great sinner and christ is a great savior and then he wrote amazing grace as part of his testimony of how god saved a wretch like him for his sinful slave trading practices. So Paul lumps them in that same category here, liars, perjurers, and and then he's kind of summarizes it and for whatever else is contrary to in case I you know it's a short list. So he's like and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine there's that word again that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, lest anybody think from reading the short list there and this is this is Paul's intent too lest anybody think that you know Timothy or the church at Ephesus or any of us should feel so condemned you know by the list we just read Paul's going to say okay there's something else we need to understand that should identify or should define the church and that is that it should also be a place of grace and he's going to use in the next few verses his own story his own little testimony of how he came to know Christ and how he experienced the wonderful benefits of God's mercy and God's grace and God's love in his life so, so that nobody would feel completely condemned by what he just wrote. He had to write He says, listen, this is sound doctrine. Here's some sin issues. You've got to deal with sin in your life. And yet he, he adds here, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, Paul's own testimony, you can read about his conversion, is in Acts chapter 9, and it's this wonderful conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He's going from Jerusalem to Damascus, a distance of about 200 miles. The Bible tells us that he was zealous about persecuting Christians in particular because as a very devout Jew, he thought he was doing God a favor by killing Christians. Because as a devout Jew who did not initially believe that Jesus was Messiah, he thought that all the other Jews who did believe Jesus was Messiah was abandoning the true and living God, putting their faith and trust in a false Messiah... And thus Paul, in his zealousness for God, thought he was helping God by killing those Christians. And so he was actually a party to rounding up Christians, imprisoning them. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul is also giving his testimony, he talks about how he forced Christians to blaspheme God, to try to deny their faith, imprison them, and help to murder them. Now, we don't know if he personally murdered, but he was a party to it, and that's why he lists just three things about himself. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. And he says, but... I was shown mercy. Circle that word, mercy. I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. Aren't you glad that you were shown mercy? I know I'm glad that I was shown mercy and continually shown mercy. And he said, I, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, ignorance is never an excuse for sin, but it invites God's mercy Because you are less culpable than a believer who knowingly sinned. Now, don't lose me on this. We are all guilty before God in terms of position. There's none righteous, no, not one. But there are different levels of guilt in terms of commission. Charles Spurgeon once said All men are truly sinners, all of us. But all men are not equally sinners. They are all in the mire, we're all in the mud. But they have not all sunk to an equal depth in it. But that's interesting. Again, we are all guilty before God because we're all sinners. So, in terms of position, we're all sinners. But in terms of commission, some people have committed even more egregious sins than others. That isn't to say we should compare ourselves to each other. In fact, the Bible warns against that. But there are some more devastating sins that have greater consequences in this lifetime, have greater ramifications. And we should be mindful of that. And the reason I bring this up is because Paul's going to say that about himself. Look on with me. He says in verse 14, the grace, there's another great word for you to circle, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, in my Bibles, I've, I've circled the words mercy, grace, faith, and love, because it's a wonderful contrast to the words that describe Paul, before he came to know Christ, blasphemer, persecutor, and violent man, now look at the words that define the Lord, mercy, grace, faith, and love. So he says, this is who I was, now this is who I am, I've been the wonderful recipient of God's mercy, grace, faith, and love. And then he says this in verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. By the way, that phrase is a phrase that Paul will use five times just in the pastoral epistles. That phrase there, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, today we would say this. Listen up. Okay? That's what he's writing there. Listen up. He said, I got something really critical for you to hear. This is this is of special importance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, Paul says. So there's his own testimony when he says, Listen, I understand we're all equally guilty before God in terms of position, but he said, in terms of commission, I'm the worst of the
1: worst. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection, as Pastor Gary Hamrick teaches through the book of 1 Timothy. If you're interested in hearing this message again, or others like it, Feel free to visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. This is a great way to keep up with Pastor Gary's studies and to have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Once there, simply look under the Teachings tab. You can also learn more about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be excited to meet you if you're in the area. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been encouraged by today's teaching from the book of 1 Timothy, and we encourage you to read over today's message on your own and then make plans to join Pastor Gary again for more from this New Testament letter right here on Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you
1: know You're not alone